This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. It's going to be a big week. It's going to be a big week in the markets. It's going to be a big week for earnings. Let's understand where we are on this Monday by setting the Business Week agenda with Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Blueberry Intelligence, on the phone from New Jersey, along with Dave Wilson, Stock Editor, author of the chart and stock of the day. He also joins us from New Jersey. Gina, I want to start with you. Set the table. This is a big week. It is. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's the second biggest week of earnings. The biggest week of earnings will be next week, but this is the second biggest week of earnings. We've got roughly 18% of the market cap of the S&P 500 set to report. Microsoft, Intel, and Verizon are some of the headliners this week. You know, I think that there's a lot of making up to do uh, for somewhat disappointing financials reports. Uh, financials beat, generally beat second quarter earnings last week. 80% of the companies that have reported earnings so far have actually beat expectations. But that wasn't really enough for a market, um, especially sensitive to what's happening with the outlook as estimates move down for 2021. Mm. So what I think we need to see this week is some of these big tech names confirm the optimism embedded in prices and at least confirm that the outlook for 2021 is pretty strong for stocks to continue to move higher. Right. We need, Gina, like, give me something, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Something other than a modest beat to a horrible second quarter expectation is definitely what the market needs. I have to say, because I've had a bunch of conversations over the weekend with people in different industries, and there's a lot of pessimism out there, real concerns about what the economic backdrop is. Dave, come on in on our conversation. Talk to us a little bit about the trade today, because it really is tech-driven. Absolutely. I mean, if you talk about, let's say, the fan mag stocks or the big six, however you want to refer to them, and uh, we're talking uh, Amazon, Apple, Google, their owner, uh, Alphabet, you know, Microsoft, Netflix, Facebook, it's probably out of order, but that's okay. I mean, that basically, that's it. That's the entire gain in those six stocks. In fact, it really comes down to, uh, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and Alphabet, pretty much. I mean, it just goes to show you, you know, there's been so much of a focus on these larger tech companies, and they really are carrying the day at this point you know, anticipation that uh, their earnings are going to look better than what we're going to see from a whole lot of other companies, presumably, as part of that. I mean, you, you look at, uh, you know, stock indexes and you see, you know, the consumer discretionary group is leading the way, and that's the retailers, but it's all Amazon. You yeah. know, that's sort of how it is. And right behind them are the tech stocks and, you know, communication services, which is Facebook and Alphabet, and everything else out of the 11 main industry groups is lower. So it just goes to show you, you know, how things are, are, are setting up at this point as we await second quarter results. Yeah, Gina, I don't know. You've seen so many market cycles. You, you know, you have, you're, you have such great insight. I know one of the things that everybody's reading on the terminal today is about Ned Davis research kind of changing their tune when it comes uh, to the market outlook and, and thinking more like changing. I think it was their, their bullish, really just abandoning their bullish call on U.S. equities. What do you look for? Who do you also like to follow that gives you a good idea of kind of where we go from here? 
Yeah, I mean, so I, I think you do look for the rate of change in economic momentum as one of the bigger drivers of potential optimism emerging for stocks going forward. And the fact that really the economic, the perception is that the economic momentum is going to stall over the next couple of months as we have had a renewed spike in infection rate. And that's that's one of the things that certainly is holding back a lot of confidence, a lot of sentiment toward the outlook. And we probably need to see that removed to get people coming back to equities in mass. But I do think the other side of the story is the Fed has reinflated tremendously. There's a pretty reasonable prospect that we're going to get another fiscal policy package out of Europe. We may get another fiscal policy uh, package supporting the U.S. economy as well in the next couple of weeks. And that's most likely going to surprise these really sort of grim expectations to the upside because it is liquidity, it is money. Um, that's going to help support the economies directly in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's not the most efficient money, but it is money. Right. Uh, and I think you do need to price that in. I mean, I I take the point that FANG is uh, driving a lot of gains. I mean, we look at the big five and call them FANG of FAMIG, sorry, and uh, you do see that those valuations relative to the rest of the S&P 500 are extremely high. However, this is not just a U.S. story. This is something we wrote about last week, too. If you look at BAT, the big tech stocks in China, the gap there in valuations is even bigger than the uh, big tech gap here in the U.S. So this is a global phenomenon. This is a global tech concentration that I do think is somewhat at risk, but nonetheless, it keeps defying everybody, every skeptic's expectations that it can continue to go. Yeah. And just to clarify, Bat, we're talking about Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, correct? Right. right. That's correct. Yeah. There you go. The acronyms All right, team. continue. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Gina Martin Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence from New Jersey, as was Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg. Well, the CETF, it stands for COVID 19 Early Treatment Fund, founded by entrepreneur and philanthropist Steve Kirsch this year amid the pandemic. The fund recruits physicians, scientists, epidemiologists to work on repurposing drugs to treat the virus. So, Interesting, especially on a day when we got some more news about a vaccine specifically. Let's bring in Dr. Lisa Danzig. She's focused on infectious diseases. She spent over 18 years at Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics. She's the chief medical advisor at CETF, and she's on the phone from San Francisco. Dr. Danzig, it is so great to have you here on Bloomberg Radio with Jason and myself. Tell us a little bit more about this fund. It's a new thing, right? But tell us about the group that are involved and and the pursuit that you are all after. Oh, well, Carol and Jason, thank you so much for having me on, and, and thank you for your coverage of uh, this really important outbreak. Uh, the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund was created to address the critical gap in our global COVID response, and that is to fund clinical trials of repurposed drugs that could lead to effective early treatments for COVID. And so how do you identify those? We have a scientific advisory board. Um, one of the things that um, Steve Kirsch, who founded this uh, organization, is a tech entrepreneur, and he's very fast-moving, results-oriented, but he's not a stranger to philanthropy in the healthcare area. And the first thing he did was assemble really a world-class scientific advisory board and got the word out for funding requests. So he has over 40 proposals. They've all been qualified. They've all been reviewed. They've all been prioritized. And all we need now is another $20 million to get the most promising nine trials up and off the ground to rapidly uh, get information on which of these may be most promising. 
Dr. Danson, where does this fit within the grand pursuit of a vaccine and treatments overall? Because I do think Jason and I have had a lot of conversations that we all understand that right now there needs to be global coordination. So your effort certainly sounds interesting and promising, but how does it fit into that global pursuit to make sure that you're not kind of repeating something that somebody else is going after? Yeah, this is a highly coordinated effort. There's there's a, a mad rush. There were three important papers on the list of repurposing. You need a little bit of duplication in science, but certainly not a lot of redundancy. Many look to a vaccine as the best hope for recovery, but we need tools. We need we need treatments and tools. And this disease is so unique because we don't just need antivirals. We also need immune modulators, and we also need rescue agents and strategies when when people are in advanced stages of this disease. So, you know, because of the three different types of therapeutic modalities that we need for early, moderate, and late disease, we need massive parallel efforts. And so what are some of the early findings in terms of either identifying some promising potentials or like how should we as, candidly, like regular people be thinking about this in in terms of what the because we're all looking for some optimism some ray of hope here um give us some if you can yeah well we're looking for the early yes and the early no but yeah mm-hmm. before cetfd funded a hydroxychloroquine study that gave an early no we're looking for the early yes there are a number of um, interferon lambda studies enrolling right now there's one at stanford it's more than halfway through the dsmb halfway um said, uh, safety looks good, you should continue. If it didn't look good, we would have not continued. So, so that's encouraging. We got to get these trials enrolled. Um, well, and, and yeah. what's, well, what's interesting too is, and this is, I think, you know, Jason and I have talked to a lot of individuals, um, including just last week, we were talking to the CEO of Inovio, and we've all been talking to the folks at Moderna, you know, um, about the pursuit of a vaccine. But it's a vaccine, but as you said, we're going to need treatments, not just the antivirals. We're going to need treatments that can take care of people at different stages of the virus to prevent them from dying, ultimately. That's what this is about. It, it's about both. So, you know, the idea of an early antiviral, if you can prevent the second I get a positive test, early symptoms, then, you know, maybe we can prevent with an antiviral the late-stage immunological complications that that wind up causing all the severe morbidity and um, and require different kinds of therapies. So there are a lot of approaches in antiviral. There are a lot of approaches in immune modulators, things like interferon, things like IL-6 inhibitors. There are um, immune signaling pathways that are being evaluated uh, for which there's encouraging results. People are looking at repurposing screens to see if some drugs on the shelf somehow inhibit the pathway, like uh, doxazis and the alpha blocker is, is, um, has, uh, um, reduces catecholamine. So there's all sorts of really good work. The problem is there's, um, there's 92 potential agents that we could look at. Wow. And so we're not going to get the data. We need a rapid screen of yes or no to help our ecosystem of drug manufacturers and accelerators and our network of larger trials to know which drugs are promising, which ones to accelerate, and which ones don't have a signal that maybe we need to rotate out of the system. Let's get back to our conversation with Lisa Danzig. She is the Chief Medical Advisor for the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund, CETF, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. So, Lisa, I want to jump ahead a a little bit just because I want to make sure that 
Carol and I understand this, or at least I understand. I'm sure Carol already gets it. But, <laughs> you know, this all this work, what happens next? You know, quick yeses, quick noes. You find something that works or a combination of things that work. How does it sort of get out to the public? What's the means of distribution here? Right. That's a great question, especially for it shows the beauty of the approach for repurposed drugs. In drug development, you've got to manufacture it. In vaccine, we're massively um, uh, proceeding with this parallel effort to manufacture the vaccine before we even know it works. The beauty of the repurposed drugs is many of the things that we're testing are already in manufacturing, are already able to be used. So the barrier to scale-up and distribution are really limited by the information. Does it work or not? Uh, There are a lot of groups. There's the NIH. There's a number of global adaptive trials where additional follow-up or confirmatory testing can be. So the first thing would be getting into broader trials. And then the second would be working with the generic manufacturers on their supply chain and their distribution. But it's a much faster process. Lisa, why is it so important to focus on this kind of research that you guys are doing, I guess, treatment research, right, as opposed to just working on a vaccine. And I do wonder what role the federal government, which has given money to teams that are working specifically on a vaccine, what role the government needs to have in this? Because I think we as a society need to understand, you know, like you said, we need a vaccine, but we also need these treatments. Like how important this component is to really getting control here. Well, I, this is a critical component. I asked myself the same question in January as I saw this unrolling. I'm a vaccine developer and sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, how do I follow this? I'm following what I know, which is drugs, diagnostics, and um, vaccine development. And I didn't see the response. This should, there should, this should be part of a coordinated global and a coordinated federal response. And I didn't see it happening. And, you know, we don't have time to wait. And this grassroots effort um, that people like me are self-activating, we're joining, we're teaming, all of the investigators that are submitting trials don't have a bias to the product that they're submitting. They want to work together. So we're really creating a global collaborative network to deal with the disease that we've never seen before and we're just beginning to understand. But how does something like remdesivir or hydro? Uh, hydroxychloroquine kind of get attention, right? That's a treatment modality. How do they get attention versus some of the other things that you guys are working on that maybe are not? There, that's a good question. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not a media person. Obviously, <laughs> they were there first. Okay. And they're there. They they got amplified. And I think the the point that I'm bringing is there are a lot of other places to look. Hydroxychloroquine, the data's and the data's mixed at best. We've got a bunch of negative data. We've got some safety concerns. Let's bring some other things in queue. Let's get as excited. There's 200 and some clinical tri- trials for hydroxychloroquine. Let's convert some of them. And if somebody wants to look at our trials, we've got treatearly.org. There are three ways people can get involved. They can donate, participate. Um, which means find a trial that's running in case you want to enroll or able to enroll or apply for funding. Is right. there, just lastly, just 30 seconds, are there any any treatments out there that you think should be on our radar? I'm watching uh, the pegylated interferon lambda trial, which is running at a number of sites. We're watching favipiravir, which is an anti-influenza drug licensed in Japan that's being used in China and Russia for um, uh, for uh, COVID. Uh, Camistat is um, an anti, it's a drug 
licensed in Japan for um, pancreatitis, mm -hmm. and it's thought to inhibit an enzyme that's required to activate uh, the spike protein to enter the cell. And, uh, you know, we're looking at monoclonal antibodies. There's, right. there's, a, there's a long list. Uh, go to our website, treatorly.org. It's on it. Treatorly.org. All right. Well, we really appreciate it. And Dr. Come Lisa back Danzig. to let us know how stuff is going. Uh, yeah, keep us pleasure. posted. Um, we really appreciate your work. Chief Medical Advisor for the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. Joining us on the phone from San Francisco. I have to say, I mean, when mm. I get sort of despondent about everything that's going on, I do think about all the scientists who are yeah. mobilizing around this. I, I think it's arguably, inarguably, in a way that they've never mobilized around anything before. And we're all going to have to play a role because they do have to do testing. There's going to have to be human trials yeah. in order to get it up and running. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on a Monday afternoon. Got a word for you. Yes. Awkward. Yeah. Ako taco, as the kids would say. <laughs> um, this is a fantastic story. Uh, couldn't get enough of it as I was reading it this morning. Sri Natarajan wrote it. A great quarter for Wall Street comes at a very awkward time, as Carol just said. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, he joins us from Massachusetts. Joel, talk to me about this. I mean, this, I, I feel like there there are these times, I've said this on this program before, where like Bloomberg Markets Joel and Bloomberg Business Week Joel sort of collide and it shows up in the magazine and I love it. Well, I've been, uh, uh, I think we've been, we've been begging uh, Sri uh, to write stuff uh, for the magazine uh, f for, uh, for years, years. <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, fi finally got him his attention. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, but it was, I think, a really interesting week last week um, on Wall Street um, as all the banks reported their earnings and it, you know basically it was just like one day one day one day next day next day <laughs> next day and we just saw this you know constant trickle of news and by the end of the week I was just like I I just kind of want somebody to step back and and write about the this moment because you know you guys said it at the top it's like it's been it's sort of an awkward one where the trading uh, revenue which is something that had just basically disappeared uh, came back big time, and, but it was also a really awkward time for that to happen while everyone else uh, has to sort of look on and and is not uh, maybe having as good of uh, a life right now. Um, so, Sri, where did you, where did you guys uh, take that story? I mean, to really take from your point, Joel, uh, you have to think about the fact that trading revenue truly had disappeared over the last ten years to the extent that it wasn't the same engine driving Wall Street's power presence and their revenues and their profit numbers because volatility had gone away. The markets were sort of ho-hum and, and, and you were sort of along for the ride but not really making a killing. That changed and, and that changed. And remember, all these trading desk bosses, all these trading desk chiefs have been begging and praying to have that bout of volatility return to the market so that they can show when there is heightened level of risk, when there is volumes being churned out left, right, and center, you can make big money, especially if you take some risk, you, you stand to reap big gains. But the problem is when this number has come through, Goldman Sachs, second best revenue ever in its history, JP Morgan, highest revenue ever, Morgan Stanley, highest revenue and highest profitability ever. But can you imagine a worse time to be able to talk about it because you're talking about a broader economy where a lot of people are struggling. So this perception of Wall Street's biggest investment bank making 
in killing that perception at a time when everyone else is riding a tough economy makes it, uh, I mean, that's the main reason we're really calling it an awkward one. And the numbers show it, 45 billion for the top five investment banks, yeah. numbers we've never heard of in quite a while. And yet uh, for it to come right now, it does make everyone a little bashful on Wall Street. Right. Shri, thank God they didn't cause the crisis, right? They didn't cause the pandemic. That's at least one thing on their side. And that's, and that's the whole weird part here, right? And, and it comes across when you talk to a lot of the Wall Street executives. I mean, we pointed out as soon as their earnings came out, there were some analysts who came out, there were one analyst who came out and said, look, Goldman's numbers are frankly indecent to force more uh, political action to come down the pike. And, and the people we spoke to said, look, that's unfair because perhaps you could make an argument for the 2008 global financial crisis that banks did play an integral part in bringing down uh, the global economy. But you really can't make the case here. The virus was not birthed in the bank trading floor. They, are, they have just benefited from the actions taken by the Fed to prop up the economy from, uh, from the massive surge in volatility, massive surge in volume. Uh, and they, they have been able to ride that wave perfectly well. However, that is not consolation enough for those on the outside. And you can truly understand why those on the outside are frustrated because for them, whether it's a recession or not, Wall Street always wins. So when they see the narrative of Wall Street winning, they see it as Wall Street winning again. And right. that's the problem right. that we're here. Well, I think one thing that's interesting there, though, Sri, and, and this was certainly true in the earnings calls, uh, and something that you bring in the story too is that yeah, while while this was maybe a, a pretty good uh, quarter by the numbers. Uh, there's no there's no indication that this can they can keep it up either right and even uh, the CEOs and whatnot have indicated as much um, so what is what is it what does the future potentially look like here for for the banks in future oh, quarters? Jamie Dimon is Jamie Dimon is much better positioned than any of us I guess to sort of give us a sense of what it could look like and he's actually saying we could see trading revenues drop by about or at least the volume and the volatility and everything that could lead to business and activity drop by about 50% for the second half of the year. That is to an extent understandable, the crazy levels that we saw in March, April, May. It is incredibly hard to imagine how that's sustainable. However, take a step back and think about the second half of 2020 that we're walking into. Think about the American elections. Think about you know the various directions this pandemic can still take. Think about all the geopolitical flashpoints across the world. It's hard to imagine that you're going into a second half of 2020 that will be sedate. It will, I don't think anyone can call it ho-hum. And if it's not going to be ho-hum, you can still expect the trading desk to make a killing. And Sri, so is this mostly about raised eyebrows or is there something more? Is this catching the attention of Washington? You quote one member of Congress uh, making a comment about it. But is this the sort of thing that could catch fire during the campaign, especially if Joe Biden continues to, to gain steam here? That's, that, that's the unknown here, right, which is you're, you're going you're, you're 105 days away from another pivotal election in the United States. Uh, when you see numbers like this coming out of Wall Street and when you see the struggles in on Main Street and the broader economy, I cannot imagine any politician not wanting to jump on the bandwagon and go, go to the mat to say, hey, look, this system is stacked. This system is rigged. It is not helping 
ordinary people. Right. It is helping those who are already comfortable. So uh, you have it would be a safe bet to think that people will capitalize on it and make it a talking point. Yeah. yeah, I feel like Absolutely. it doesn't help that these guys are still considered banks when they really aren't traditional banks. I feel like, you know what I mean? Because I think banks are meant to help more of their communities and yeah. help in well, terms of Wall loans. They're but, they're, but they're really Wall Street, and that's yeah. why they get to play, you know, and volatility helps them on the trading desks. Uh, it's a great story. Check it out. Uh, that story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Shri Natarajan, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in New York City. Joe Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, on the phone from Massachusetts. Well, you're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek in his latest economy, uh, in his latest column, excuse me. Bloomberg New Economy editorial director Andy Brown points out something that was written recently in a Financial Times column. It, it's about how to be in Washington is to sense a nation sliding into open-ended conflict against China with eerily little debate. I'm quoting from Andy's story. So we've got a few things to unpack here. And joining us as he does every week, Andy Brown on the phone in New Hampshire. There is a lot going on when it, whenever you talk about U.S. and China. Tell us, though, Andy, why you highlighted um, specifically uh, this Financial Times column. Yeah, it, it just it just seems that um, both parties and both candidates in the election, uh, sort of in the in the in the absence of anything that looks like a nuanced, balanced approach towards China, are just trying to outcompete each other on being tough. And you know, the latest example of this is this idea that the White House has floated this trial balloon to ban all 90 million members of the Communist Party from traveling to the United States and their families. So we're talking about, you know, 300 million people, potentially, quarter of the population of China. Um, and, you know, in the, in this, kind of, this kind of escalation um, is really incredibly dangerous. I mean, the only impact of uh, a directive like that, were it ever to be implemented, would essentially be to halt all interchange between the United States and China. I mean, number one, it would prevent Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, from ever traveling to China. You couldn't have trade talks because pretty much all of the members of the Chinese trade negotiation team are also members of the Chinese Communist Party, as are many academics. Um, and the question is, you know, they're, they're practical questions. I mean, since the Chinese Communist Party doesn't actually publish a list of its members, right. Right. It, it, it's hard to know how, how on earth you would implement it. I mean, it's about as broad and sweeping as sort of a ban on all Muslims or something like that, which were ideas floated very, very early on. And so the column is, is sort of saying, look, you know, we, we need to have an intelligent conversation about where we're going in all this. Is this what we really want? Do we want an open-ended confrontation with China, which could ultimately lead to war? If that's where we're going, then we should, have, then we should tell the American public what this is going to mean. This is going to mean big national, you know, uh, 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 sacrifice. It's going right. to have a massive cost on the economy. Are you ready for all this? So, Andy, I do want to ask you, because you're so good at giving this perspective to us, flip this around. If you're sitting in China and as a Chinese national, how are you viewing what's going on here at this moment? Well, I think what, you're, what, what the, the, the view from Beijing is very much that um, 
the West is out to, and certainly the United States is out to throttle us. Um, uh, they're not interested in engagement anymore. They look at these increasingly hostile um, uh, policy initiatives or trial balloons coming out of Washington, um, and they're asking themselves, they're, they're hunkering down for a long, t- long term, uh, they think of the worst, um, Cold War engagement with mm-hmm. the United States. And, you're dr- and basically they're saying we've got to be self-reliant. Uh, and so you're accelerating it precisely the trends which ostensibly you're trying to prevent, um, i.e., you know, if, if we're serious about doing trade with China, we want to open their markets, we want greater engagement, we want, we want American businesses going over there, we want bankers uh, able to operate freely, brokerages and so, and, and so on. Uh, and in fact, what you're doing is driving the Chinese to a position where they say, actually, this isn't what they want. We just have to, we just have to, we just have to, to, to go, go for autarky. We have to be self-reliant. Right. This, is, this, is, this is essentially economic war. Well, and what's interesting, too, as you write in your column, Andy, is, you know, voters need to be aware that there are alternative approaches to how we interact with China. And I think it's an interesting time. I heard somebody over the weekend say to me, Roma's Roma's burning in, in, in describing America specifically in that, you know, we're in crisis, we're preoccupied maybe with some of the wrong things. Meantime, the rest of the world is kind of laying out their big, broad strategies. And I do wonder if the American public kind of really understands the gravity of kind of what's going on right now uh, as a result of the administration. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the alternative approach that you talk about is, is, is pretty simple. If you can't change Chinese behavior, and I, I, I think it's very unlikely that you are going to change the drift of Chinese industrial policy. Xi Jinping has concluded that a state-led economy, such as the one that he's building now in China, um, is, a, is a necessary political support for the Chinese Communist Party. I don't think you're going to change that behavior. You do what you can do, which is change your own behavior. Right. And so you get back to this you know america needs a a policy of national renewal investment in in science in technology in education in healthcare all the areas that have been exposed now by this by this coronavirus um, so, you know, what, what I'm saying in my column is the Chinese look at this, these, these, these threats from the Trump administration. They probably, they probably dismiss them as, as unworkable. They're going to be looking at, you know, Joe Biden's $2 trillion stimulus uh, and taking that more seriously. So my yeah. point is, why don't we have a competition with China to reinvent the global economy, a sustainable global economy? Right. Let's compete with them on a green initiative. Let's compete with them on tech to create the technologies that will drive yeah. innovation, you know, drive sustainable growth in the 21st century. Right. That's a great win. It, it's a great idea. Um, and everybody should check out uh, Andy's economy. Bloomberg, his column, Bloomberg New Economy Director, Andy Brown. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's hit the drive to the close on this accelerating day, I feel like, of green, Carol. 
See it's like I pretty. There? It's I did see very nicely done, but it's yeah. pretty remarkable, right? The momentum it here. It is. Uh, so who to better see. to talk to us about it than JJ Kennehan, chief market strategist for TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone. JJ, how the heck are you? It's been a while. Uh, yeah, your luck ran out. So far, so good. How about you guys? Hope everyone's healthy and happy. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. Week 19, I think, from uh, broadcasting from our respective homes here in New York and New Jersey. So it's obviously a different world, I think. Uh, I think we've talked to you since the pandemic set in, but uh, I don't think anybody expected it would be this long. And meanwhile, we've got a market that seems to be, by some accounts, kind of defying gravity here, especially when it comes to tech stocks. What are you seeing? Well, it's really amazing. You know, you guys talked talk about it in the newsflash just right there. You see Microsoft, you see Amazon. And what I really find amazing is going into earnings to have uh, the analysts update, you know, giving upgrades on the stocks right before we go into them. It's, it, it's a risky move on their part. You normally don't see that. But what then concerns me is, even if these are amazing earnings, which obviously everyone expects them to be, uh, can that sort of carry the day after earnings, or is it going to be a sort of buy the rumor, sell the news, Mm. because the expectations are so high heading into these tech earnings? After banks did okay, but kind of did what we expected, and that trading revenues were good, and everything else, uh, you know, when your net interest margin gets squeezed, it was just so-so. Well, what would you do if they're disappointing, considering the run-up, especially some of those big well, tech names? I think it really changes the momentum, Carol, to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, you know, right now, even though, uh, as we just got done talking about being the stay-at-home trade, et cetera, the, uh, I, I think we have sort of positive momentum that at some point here will come out of it. Things will resume. I don't want to say as they were, because I don't think they're ever going to be exactly as they were, but in a good way or better way. With that said, if these stocks, which we're all relying on to be the leaders, and to their credit, they have been, don't meet these expectations, you know, it gives you a little bit of a head-scratcher. It's In a weird way, it's like the technology, the mature technology stocks have become a little bit of a safety play during this whole time. <laughs> Why kind of is amazing. that? Well, is it just because they're not so kind of, I mean, they have become such a part of our, our lives, personally, professionally. Absolutely. And, you know, when you see these analysts talking about the fact that, like, Microsoft's Azure platform, I'm sorry, had to uh, exponentially start performing, and all of a sudden 12 months of development cycles came flying through really quickly. And with that, they didn't have many problems. I think that that really gives people some excitement as to the opportunity there and how quickly other things that really sort of change our lives, if you will, can uh, come up. The other thing is, and we can't forget about the fact that you have a 62 basis point 10-year yield, and it just doesn't excite anybody. So I think people are also saying, okay, if I'm heading to retirement or whatever it may be, do I want to put a lot of money there, or do I want to try and get capital appreciation from stocks I trust? You know, some have yield, some don't, but overall, they've been solid. And that capital appreciation has certainly been much better than the yield play right now. I still am sort of puzzled, and maybe I shouldn't be, JJ, around all things transport here. 
Um, you know, especially as we're talking about business travel, Carol, mm-hmm. you know, just basically yeah. never coming back to the levels that it was. As an investor, how should we be thinking about either the big airline names or, or even more broadly the hospitality and, and travel business? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our, our clients really took to them in March and April, I think last time we talked, because there was sort of a government, you know, uh, netting there, if you will, or backstop. Now that they've, they've rallied a bit and haven't really perhaps had to take up to the level maybe we thought they would, you know, particularly with what we've heard out of United and American recently, I think that this is a little bit of a riskier investment at this point. And as we see, you know, some restrictions being loosened then put back, uh, you know, you're really betting on a recovery. What I would say is if you're if you're investing there right now, I would really think about a longer time frame. A lot of this investment depends upon what's your time frame. If you're doing it for a quick hit, you're taking quite a risk. If you're saying, you know what? I think in two, three years, we'll be back to a level where, you know, even international business travel is going again. Then that investment makes more sense to me. And I think too often retail traders don't take their time frames that they say it's a long-term investment without defining that. (laughs) Or short-term, I think, particularly now, you have to define that more than ever. So when it comes to some of these specific names, um, whether it's a Netflix, whether it's a Microsoft, whether it's Tesla, are there any, though, that really stand out for you that you think should be kind of part of an investor's portfolio at this point, J.J.? Well, I do think Microsoft is one that you could probably trust, uh, if you will, because it's a more mature company. And I think that that's what we're seeing out of our clients, et cetera, is that with that, it, it, it's, it's a company that you're like, okay, you know, this makes sense. When it comes to a stock like Tesla, not to poo-poo it, but, you know, I, I like to look at the options market a lot. Even if you don't trade options, they give you a, a, an idea of what people are pricing in. If you look at Tesla, and if you were going to hold it for 32 calendar days, the implied move right now is almost $480. So when I ask people, if you're going to buy Tesla, do you have the stomach for it to move? An expected move could be $480 against you as well as for you. Right. Do you have the stomach for that? And I don't think people consider that enough when they go into these types of investments. I'll take that as a no. That should not be a standard <laughs> in your portfolio. Uh, <laughs> That's a big swing. Say, that might be a little bit riskier part of your investment. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, JJ Kenahan, great to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade joining us on the phone from Chicago. Love when he gets specific and uh, you know just talks about some of both the trends, but also some of the individual names that uh, we all think about all the time. We talk about them all the time on this show, Carol. Yeah, totally. You know, And not all tech should be necessarily grouped together, right? Yeah. Not all tech companies are the same, I think. you know. So it's, it's a good way, um, especially when he says, like, look at the options market. That gives you a really good indication of what investors are thinking. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We'll be right back.